Good morning, guys. I'm going to read um, a passage of scripture um, before BJ comes up. Um, this is going to be from Genesis chapter 3. I'm just going to read this over you guys right now. Uh, this is Genesis chapter 3, verses 20 through 24. And it says, The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made clothing from skins from, for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. The Lord God said, Since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. Thanks, Christian. Seth, just a heads up, I had that on slides. I know I do it different than everybody, so now you're going to be two slides behind, but don't worry about it. <laughs> I like to throw curveballs at our tech crew. Uh, well, hi, I should introduce myself. Uh, my name is BJ, and I'm a staff pastor here. I spend most of my time with the youth, and yeah, that guy does too. Uh, and <laughs> So I spent most of my time with the youth, and then also I, I come up here every now and then and teach. It's been a little while, so I thought I'd say hi to those of you who I haven't had a chance to meet yet. Um, if we haven't met, come see me after service. My name is BJ. I'd love to meet with you. Following that passage, um, is, is kind of a, it's kind of weird to go straight from Genesis into the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be speaking on communion today. We're going to be speaking on... Um, Peter's denial. So it's kind of, it seems like kind of a weird, kind of a strange thing to go straight from um, the garden. But the reality is that when we were created, we were created to walk in the cool of the evening with our creator. Um, I think sometimes we get a little nebulous when we just call him God, which he is. He's also our creator. He personally formed us, knit us together. And we were supposed to walk with him, not separate from and observed, we're not putting in an aquarium and observe from a distance. Um, we are to walk with our creator. The fall of mankind, the dark reality of our own sin, brought about the separation of mankind from our creator, resulting in a terrible longing deep within every person and deep within the creator himself for that relationship to be repaired, for us to come back together in that unity, to walk freely once again in the cool of the evening. With that in mind, diving into Mark today, um, I'm reminded of the word, I wanna say, I didn't write this down, I think it's C.S. Lewis, that if a author wanted their subject of what they're writing about to know them, they would have to write themselves into the story. And today as we're gonna see that the way that God chose to write himself into the story is a rather radical one. It's a rather stunning thought that the creator himself would write himself into the story that we could know him personally at all, much less in this way, the role he willingly chose for himself is a radical role to write yourself into. I don't know if you've ever written anything, 
I, I was homeschooled and I lived off grids, so I did a lot of writing, <laughs> pen and ink. Some of you are like, is that true? Yeah, it's actually true. Um, it's weird. Talk to me about it. It's a terrible idea. Don't do it ever. Um, but I did a fair amount of writing, and in my, boy, we were out there from the time I was 13 until 19, and in those years, what I would write about if I was in the story, which I did fairly often, I was pretty cool. <laughs> like, uh, cool, like, <laughs> now Jesus is far beyond pretty cool, but he's not going to look in the type of cool that I wrote myself into in my stories. Um, open up to Mark 14. Most of you probably already flipping there. It should be on the screen, Mark 14. We're going to read verses 22 through 31 today. I'm going to read the whole passage just so that we all have the context of what we're talking about before I break it down. And it reads like this. As they were eating, he took bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to them and said, take it. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. He said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I tell you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. After singing a, a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, all of you will fall away because it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Peter told him, even if everyone falls away, I will not. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to him, today, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he kept insisting, if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And they all said the same thing. This passage is, um, it feels kind of weird to combine the two. There's other details that happens in between these two portions of story, but we know Mark. We know the way Mark has been trudging through the Gospels. I say trudging, more like rocketing through the Gospels with very short and very vivid details as he's been progressing. Because they're fairly short and vivid details, um, I don't think I would actually use Mark to teach communion. Like if I were to do a, a topical sermon um, on communion, I... <laughs> Not the first time I've done that. No, I won't move it. Christian, I won't, I won't mess you up. If I were to teach a topical sermon on communion, I wouldn't use the Gospel of Mark. It's not that you can't use the Gospel of Mark. It's that there's more detail in other Gospels. And then 1 Corinthians has uh, more of your doctrinal style teaching of communion and, and what we're to do with communion. Paul details it very vividly. I'm not going to do that today. 
I'm interested. I'm, instead, I'm going to try, try is the key word, to highlight what Jesus' words would have meant to a Jewish person sitting in that room in that day who had been walking with their rabbi and learning from their rabbi for these years. We've come this far in the narrative. Let's soak this in. Let's soak this in. Mark gave very vivid, short details so that we get to experience it. Let's experience it. Let's tackle the first section first. I'll read it again just as a reminder. As they were eating, he took bread. This is speaking of Jesus. He blessed and broke it, gave it to them and said, take it. This is my body. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, gave it to them. And they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, keyword covenant, covenant, hang on to that, which is poured out for many. Truly I tell you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Then they sang a hymn and they went to the Mount of Olives. Now there are two elements here at play, two elements in communion. And if you're anything like me, you may have wondered <laughs> as you're sitting out off grid under a pine tree as you do, why are there two elements to communion? Why two? To represent Jesus' sacrifice, his sacrificial death, we have two elements. I mean, he only died once. Couldn't he have just used one element? Why do we have the bread and the wine? Taking communion has always been a deeply private thing for me uh, and deeply personal thing for me. As such, I was never prone to ask clarifying questions as a kid. It felt somehow irreverent to ask any questions because to ask a question seemed to me at the time to be too similar to doubt. Now that's not a healthy way to think. It's not a biblical way to think, but that's how I thought. It's the reality. So how would I take communion as a kid? Well, it looks something like this. The pastor would say, let's take the bread, remember Jesus' body broken for us. And I'd say in my head, with my head bowed down, Jesus, I thank you, and I do remember you. I remember that you died, and that when you died, your body was broken for me. But your bones weren't broken, though. What does that mean? Focus, BJ, focus. He's about to talk about the blood. And he'd say, this is my blood, pour it out for you. Take and drink in remembrance of me. So I'd sit there, head back down again. Jesus, I thank you again. Thanks again, yeah. And I do remember that you died uh, again. I remember again. And that when you died, your, your blood was spilled for me. Yeah, and that definitely did happen. But why do we say body broken? Why do we remember you twice in one sitting? Nope, focus, focus, worship's about to start. People are gonna start standing up at random and you don't wanna be the only one sitting. <laughs> so according to scripture, all the worship team members love that one. So according to scripture, what is actually happening with the two elements? Why are there two elements? Let's start with the blood. Because Jesus says, blood of the covenant. And, and that phrase makes sense, makes sense 
for anyone who's read scripture uh, a fair amount, it would have made tons of sense to the Jews sitting in the room. Blood of the covenant. This element is the easiest to make sense of, so we'll start with that. We know what a covenant is, uh, but if you're, if you're not sure, what is a covenant? The word used in this passage of the Greek form of covenant, roughly pronounced uh, diatheke, that's North Idaho slang, if you will. Um, in basic modern North Idaho English, a covenant is basically an agreement between two or more individuals respons- with responsibilities. You grow the potatoes, I'll cook the potatoes. We'll have dinner. Like that's a covenant, if you will. We're maybe more familiar with social covenants as marriage, the, the vows that we trade in marriage. To Jesus' disciples, however, who were sitting, who were Jews, and believed they were sitting with God's Messiah, blood of the covenant would immediately cause them to think of God's law, which was given through Moses very near and dear individual to every Jewish man's life. And so Jesus tells us in Matthew uh, 5, 7, that he came to fulfill that very law, right? He said, don't think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. That's what I came for, I came to fulfill. Within God's covenant, The law was the Israelites' responsibility. The law, being all the rules and regulations that God laid down, was the Israelites' responsibility. Meaning that Jesus is claiming to be able to fulfill their end of the law. Yeah, that's what he's claiming. That's what he's saying which we read about that law in Exodus 24, three through eight, it'll be on the screen for you, where it says, Moses came and told the people all the commands of the Lord and all the ordinances. By the way, there was a lot of them. Then all the people responded with a single voice in unison, we will do everything that the Lord has commanded. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord He rose early in the next morning and set up an altar and 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel at the base of the mountain. Then he sent out young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half the blood and set it in basins. The other half of the blood he splattered on the altar. He then took the covenant scroll and read it aloud to the people. They responded, we will do and obey all that the Lord has commanded. Moses took the blood, splattered it on the people, and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you concerning all these words. Covenant established. Our creator had Moses splatter the blood as a sealing promise that he would uphold his end of the covenant. They sealed their end of the covenant by saying, we will do and obey all that the Lord has commanded. That's what would be in the heads of these Jewish men. 
And Jesus is saying, I came to do that. I'm able to do that more than just fulfilling the law of son of man, by the way, which is line of David. He's now saying, I'm also something else. I'm not just able to do what they said, which is we will do and obey all that the Lord has commanded. I'm able to do that. More than that, he's saying I'm also the sacrifice itself. You need my blood as your covering. So I'm doing the commandments that you were supposed to do and I'm the spotless pure animal that's gonna be sacrificed. My blood is what's gonna cover you. Now I'm not convinced that the apostles actually understood what he was saying, but a simple examination of what Jesus said is quite clear. My blood, my sacrifice will bring you back into right relationship with your creator, the one who formed you, the one who knit you. Now that's one element. There's two. So the blood, it's like, I, I get that. Even as a kid, I was like, I get that. That's, you know, I've heard of the sacrifices. I understand. But there's two elements. Second element. Already the first element helps me know that I, what it is I'm experiencing with God when I take communion. The second element adds to it. So how about that second element? The bread, the body, the substance. Another translation for that word in Greek, by the way, substance, the body. Well, in Hebrews 10, 5 through 7, the writer tells us this. Therefore, as he, speaking of Jesus, was coming into the world, he said, you do not desire sacrifice and offering, but you prepared a body for me. You did not delight in whole burnt offerings and sin offerings. Then I said, see, it is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, God. And then after he says above, you did not desire or delight in sacrifices and offerings, whole burnt offerings and sin offerings, which are offered according to the law. He then says, see, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first to establish the second. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ for all time. A body given. A body given for a very specific purpose. A body given by God the Father to God the Son for a very specific purpose. To do the will of the Father. Our part of the covenant, again, that we will do everything that the Lord has commanded. A human body, a human life here on earth to do that part the part that we were unable to do, that's what the body was given for. Where we were unable, Jesus did. His whole life, we see Jesus coming before the Father in prayer, hearing and doing whose will? The Father's. 
if he's doing the will of the fathers, if Jesus is doing the will of the Father, where's his will at? It's one and the same. Jesus perfectly conforms his will to that of the Father to where they are unmistakable from one another. You cannot discern anything between the two. Jesus' will is that of the Father's from start to finish for his whole life. You see, Jesus is a very real, living, breathing human man walking this earth. He spent his childhood walking around the dusty streets on warm summer days, conversing with Bible teachers in the temple. You can't tell me that there couldn't have been a life that young little Jesus would have rather had or done. He spent his young adult years as a carpenter, building things with wood and nails, face-to-face and one-on-one with people. He built things for people. You can't tell me that there weren't lives that young adult Jesus would have rather lived. Then when it was time for his life's ministry work, he gathered together a small crew of apostles, walked the streets, offering a hand to the sick, the lame, the blind, the poor, the poor in spirit. Everywhere he's going, he's doing everything well, never falling to temptation, patiently, lovingly teaching and guiding the apostles every step of the way. They've seen him feed the hungry and shame the wicked Pharisees. Jesus' body is being put fully to the will of God. Nothing he's doing is out of step. You can't tell me that a compassionate and kind adult Jesus who loved his apostles wouldn't have had a good reason to hold on to his life, to maintain his body and the substance of it, his life's work. The amount of time that I can personally recall that I have spent grasping every single aspect of my life. And grasping what? Everything that Jesus did was good and worthy. And he grasps onto none of it. Open hand. If the truth of that doesn't change the way we view every aspect of our life from day to day, then we need to come back to the gospel and remember what Jesus did for us. Every aspect of his life open. Now, I can't take communion the same after reading this and understanding it. So this is more how I take communion now. Lord, I remember your body. The life you lived was real. It's real. You actually lived this. I remember the lives that you changed here on earth, the temptation that you suffered at the hands of the enemy, how you prevailed, and I remember that you freely handed your body over to be crushed, your life over to be crushed for, for us and for me. So I take the bread now. 
I try to picture different aspects of Jesus' actual life, the life he lived for us and then freely gave to us as he handed the bread. Then when it comes to the wine, I, I think, Lord, I remember your blood, that you were able to do what we were not, that you not only fulfilled our part of the covenant with God, you were the sacrifice as well, taking our sin on yourself to be punished once and for all. I remember that because you did this, we can live. I can live. Bread represents Jesus' life, his body, his actual physical body, life, and his life work, which was fulfilling the will of God. And the wine represents the atoning sacrifice of, of blood that covers our sin. His body, the bread, is the life that he both lived and gave up for us. His blood, the wine, is a pure and spotless sacrifice that takes away our sins. That's what communion is basically what he was telling them as he handed it to them. I am giving you me. I am giving you everything. I keep none for myself. Take my body. It's for you. It's all of it. The whole thing. It's for you. Take my blood. It's poured out to cover your sins. That's what he's telling them as he's handing it to the apostles. Verse 27 is a stiff reminder, again, that we are reading the Gospel of Mark. This overwhelming moment of beauty, love, and warmth from our Savior to his beloved apostles as he offers them his own body and his own blood. This moment is cut so short for us. We are taken away from the warmth of the dinner table and dropped straight into a passage that I didn't even want to study for this. Because after sinking our hearts and soul into experiencing the last meal with Jesus and the apostles, we are told that when he gives himself up completely, no one will stand with him. Everybody in the room who is receiving the bread that he is handing to them himself, as he offers himself to his apostles completely, they're going to completely deny him. They're going to say they don't even know him. No one will stand with him. I don't even want to go there. And yet we have to, because it's there. Verse 27 then Jesus said to them, all of you will fall away because it is written, I will strike the shepherd. I will strike the shepherd and the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Who will strike the shepherd? God. God will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now, notice Jesus didn't say, watch out, be careful, guard yourselves, stand strong, resist fear, resist temptation. There's no encouragement from Jesus to stand strong because there will be no chance of standing strong. 
They will all fall away. They will all be scattered. Now, this is fairly alarming to really any believer. (laughs) But I think especially in our culture, we sort of have this idea that if I am loving the Lord and following the Lord, nothing ever could come our way that would take us off our feet. As long as I'm standing with the Lord, God will not allow anything to overtake me. And we'll, we'll even quote passages out of context to make us sound like we are impervious because God is, is on our side. And even though that is true, we are impervious to a degree. And God is on our side. He truly is. He allows us to get crushed. He allows us to get so overwhelmed by the enormity of what's happening that we can't deal with it. That we cannot stand. We are allowed to crumble. We are allowed to fall. I don't like that. I don't like that. And I I can't even imagine being in the situation of the apostles where that's what's going to happen to them. And it's because they're going to reject their own savior. You want to freak out a bunch of high schoolers about whether or not they can lose their salvation? Start talking about the words rejection or walking away. This idea that they're going to reject Jesus completely, well, that's the unpardonable sin. There's no coming back from that. Where are you you going to go? I did it again. (laughs) I'm going to go too far this way. It's the most devastating thing that I could come to in my mind. In my heart, there are plenty of sins that I would hold higher, I think, than rejecting the Son. And yet, if I sit down and I think about it, what's the worst thing I could ever do? And without a doubt, it's rejecting the Son. And Jesus doesn't say anything that looks or sounds like rebuke. He doesn't say anything that would suggest that their failure was going to be something they could have prevented. This moment is the equivalent of having your wisdom teeth pulled out before painkillers existed. There is no avoiding this pain, but oh, when the sin is pulled out. When it's gone, when that rotten wisdom tooth is gone, then you will know peace like none other. It will in that moment be worth it. And yet, you still have to have it ripped out without painkillers. There's no rebuke. There's no condemnation. Jesus knows that what they're about to be hit by is more than they can handle. This foe is beyond any of them. They're not ready. More than that, he gives them hope. He does something really special. I want you guys to Notice in the passage, what does he say he's going to do? After the crucifixion, 
after they scatter. He says, after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. You're going to meet me there. You're going to get through this, and you're going to meet me there, and we're going to be together on the other side of this. What you are going to go through is so far beyond you that it will crush you, and yet, through your failure, I'm meeting you on the other side. And God's going to see you through the whole thing. He gives them hope. This leaves only one remaining pain to address this morning. Our very dear, passionate Peter. Verse 29, Peter told him, even if everyone falls away, I will not. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said to him, today, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he kept insisting, if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And they all said the same thing. They all said the same thing. Hold up. They all said the same thing. Everybody? Everybody. This was everybody said the same thing. Why are we calling out Peter? Mark's details are always so intentional. Peter has been called out even though it says they all said the same thing. And I believe this is because Peter seems to be the leader in this error. We've seen Mark do this throughout the gospel. Certain individuals will be highlighted, even though maybe it was a group issue. Peter seems to be the leader in this area, in this error. He's the one leading the charge, the most passionate, the most vehement. Even if everybody else does, I will not deny you. He's so strong about it. And as often the case with the leader in something, although they will all fall away, the leader will certainly land the hardest. They're all going to fall away, but only one of them is going to deny Jesus publicly three times before the rooster crows twice. This leader has stuck his foot out the most aggressively, and so he takes the most aggressive hit in this area. But they are all going to fall away. They are all going to cower in fear. And if I know anything about Jesus from our trek through Mark, I know that he will restore the most broken with the most warmth. That's how Jesus works. He has been the most comforting, the most warmth. His grace has been experienced the greatest from those who were the least. That's why he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus came for the least of these. And as Peter is going to fall very, very hard, he is going to be restored very, very warmly very, very personally by Jesus. 
because we know how this ends. There's a risk and a fear in leadership. And it's the same risk and fear for anybody else, but it's magnified in leadership. And I'm using leadership very generally because this is a room full of leaders in some degree or another. This is not specifically a church leadership thing. This is not specifically a family leadership thing. It's all leadership. As we are engaged in any form of leadership from leading in our homes to leading in our marriages to leading in our workplaces to leading in our church, wherever it is that we are called to lead and we are all called to lead, there is this huge danger involved that when we don't fully understand the will of God, we start walking down the wrong path. And when we get down that wrong path, because we're the leader, there's a bigger hit involved. If I am not confident in the Lord's will in my family's life, then my little one, Dimitri, as he's following a, a, with the lead that, that I've commanded from him, He's going to be going down the wrong path with me. And if you want to see a man's heart get crushed, don't crush his heart, crush his sons. A father is most devastated by the crushing of his son. God the Father is in full leadership here. He did not misstep once, and yet it's his son who's going to get crushed. And everybody who was raised up around him to walk with him will leave him be for a time. We can't ever fall into the trap of thinking that God the Father is somehow less loving than God the Son. Something was given that we can't fully understand. And if you're a father, you can understand it a little bit more. I understand this better than when I was 16. I understand it better than when I was 25. I didn't have a kid until I was 31. And now I understand it way better, way, way better. Jesus, God's sacrifice for me as I look at my son. Worship team, you can come on back up. This morning, I think Mark has given us these details intentionally. This communion of, of God, Jesus, choosing to hand us his very body, his life, everything, to hand it to us and to hand us his blood and say this, I'm already covered from sin because I haven't sinned, but my, I'm going to let my blood be spilled to cover yours, to cover you to immediately go into the reality that even his apostles failed. I think it highlights how necessary it was for Jesus to accomplish what we couldn't. And the moment that we think that we can somehow take that leadership on our own shoulders outside of following the direct will of God through regular communion and prayer with him is the moment that we make a mockery of this passage, that we put ourselves higher than the apostles who walked with Jesus physically, 
and we put ourselves above God's word. The beauty of all of this, the encouragement of all of this, is that this was recorded for us of Jesus giving himself completely, knowing that the failure would follow. Jesus is with us all the way. He has sent us his helper. The Holy Spirit's in every one of our hearts. And as we lead our families, we don't lead alone. There may be moments where the situation in our life is way more than we can handle, and that's okay. That's not sin, necessarily. could be. Examine your heart. Sometimes the blow is too much for us to take, and God's still there. Lord, as we come before you, recognizing your word is truth, accepting your word is truth, we long to have hearts that are changed and molded by Jesus. Jesus, your work, the life that you lived, how you gave it freely, we long to be inspired to give freely in the same way that we as fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters and fellow churchgoers would be willing to let go of our body, our life, our substance, and to give it away for the sake of the one beautiful truth that saves us all, the one beautiful act that you perform that brings us back into the garden to walk in the cool of the evening with you. Change our hearts to be more like you.